All right, tonight we will go to the lectionary for the second Sunday of Lent. And the first reading is in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis. Now, I have gone back and forth on what to do with the readings tonight. Um, Someone sent me a long email with a lot of pages of things that they came up with. I'm trying not to allow that to, you know, place something upon the text. They have some really interesting ideas, but um, we're just going to kind of go through it. It's going to be like, what we should do is just read them and not say anything. That's going to be hard, but we will try, all right? We will try, all right? Let's go to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 is the first reading for tonight. Genesis chapter 22. They have it broken up. All kinds of ways. They have it, chapter 22, verses 1 through 2. Then they jump to only part of verse 9. Then they jump to 10 to 13. Then they jump to 15 through 18. So it's all over the place. So, um, which, that that means there's got to be a reason why, right? There's got to be something they're trying to emphasize. So we'll see if we can pick anything up. So let's focus on the first reading, and we'll see where we end up, all right? Uh, Genesis chapter 22, let's first of all read verses 1 through 2. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here, uh, here I am. Please note the King James uses which word there? God did tempt, okay, which creates lots of problems because other places says God does not tempt, right? So in other translations, they remove the word tempt, they change the word tempt to test, all right? But then you could argue, can't a test be a temptation? All right, so then, yeah, so yeah, I know, we could, we could spend, we could really just stop right there and spend the rest of the hour trying to figure that out, okay? But verse 2, and he said, take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Now, if we wanted to work on biblical geography, We could try to figure out where the land of Moriah is, right? And then we could figure out which mountain he's going to end up on, okay, which could be significant, but for now, we won't do that. Then they they want us to stop right there. They want us to go to verse 9. Chapter 22, verse 9. Uh-huh, right. I know, yeah, I know, but the only someone God's going to recognize, right? Exactly. I know. Oh, yeah, definitely it's, it's worth noting, all right? Verse 9, then they want us to go to verse 9, but they only want us to read the first part of verse 9. They don't, wanna, they don't even want us to read the whole thing, which, okay, 22.9. Yeah, say same chapter, 22.9, all right? all right? That wasn't another notification, was it? Okay. All right, I hope not. Okay, okay good. I just want to make sure that uh, we already haven't lost connection or something. Okay, all right. So 22.9, here we go. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. I think they want us to just focus that Abraham came to the place which God told him of, right? That's the main thing I think they want us to see, okay? All right, then go to verse 10. They want us to go 10 to 13. And Abraham stretched forth his hand, took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, 
uh, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Then they want us to skip verse 14. They want us to go to verse 15. It's weird they just want us to skip verse 14, right? I mean, it's, it's interesting the way this works. In verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, as the sand which is upon the sea shore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of all his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. That's where they want us to stop. All right? There's probably a number of things that can jump out there, right? There's probably a number of things. We could kind of go through them. Um, but we, we won't. Uh, we, we could go through there, but we, we will not, all right? So just try to think about what we just read there, Genesis 22, verses 1 through 2, a part of verse 9, 10 through 13, and 15 through 18. We'll skip the psalm, because a lot of times the psalm is not necessarily connected. Then they want us to go to the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. They want us to go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Where do you think they're taking us? Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now here, they, they, only, they really want to just read the second part of verse 31, but 31 is so short, I, I think they just want us to read, if God be for us, who can be against us? I think that's what they want us to read, but I'm going to read the whole thing, okay? Uh, Romans 8.31, What shall we say, what then, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Then verse 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, immediately, if we think of that, back to the Genesis passage, does an immediate connection jump out at you of any kind? Does any kind of specific thing jump out at you? Okay, so we have the sacrifice kind of idea there, all right? Now, also in Genesis, they did include verses of, well, God's going to bless and give all these things to Abraham. And here, well, and w- w- with Christ comes all things, right? Okay, so there, there is somewhat of a similar, I'm, I'm seeing a similarity between the two, right? I'm seeing a similarity between the two. Now, for the gospel reading, they want us to go to Mark chapter 9. I want us to go to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Now, in this case, they don't want us to skip too many verses. They just want us to skip verse 1. 
<laughs> okay, right? So, Mark chapter 9, they want us to read verses 2 through 10. No skipping around, just want us to skip verse 1, all right? Here we go. Verse 2, And after six days, Jesus take with him Peter and James and John, and leading them up into a high mountain, apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly, when they looked around about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus, only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, and and he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean, okay? At that point, they almost forget about the other event. They're like, wait, what does that mean, all right? And then that ends the readings, okay? Now, the first two, we seem to see, I think, some parallel, some correlation, right? So then the question is, what in the world does the transfiguration have to do with this? So I will, I I think we can see The first two readings seem to emphasize sacrifice. Is that fair to say? And the last one emphasizes transfiguration. Correct? There is some similarities that in Genesis, it's about going into a mountain, right? Transfiguration in a mountain. The idea of a son whom you love is in Genesis. Correct? Beloved son, speaking of Jesus in in Mark. So you see a correlation there, yes? All right, so there there seems to be some correlation. I don't know if you can see others, but then the key is, what, what, what are we supposed to do? Now, you obviously, there's always the option of just saying, you know what? Forget two of the readings and focus on the one. You know, I hate doing that, right? I always like try to see how these fit together. So we're going to kind of go through them and see what we can do. And I, I don't know what we're going to end up with, but we'll see if we can come up with something. All right. Now, uh, the, the email kind of, they try to kind of break it down into like maybe three parts or three stages in some way of the Christian life. I thought it was kind of interesting what they were trying to do. I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to impose that right now. We may stumble upon that, but we'll work through it and just see what we can find. So let's go to Genesis 22. And now let's just kind of, we're just kind of talk our way, way through it, right? We're just going to talk our way through it instead of trying to break it all down. Now I've got more notes on the transfiguration than I do this part, but let's at least look at this, okay? So here we go. So it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, behold, here I, here I am. Now I don't want to spend seven months on this. I don't want to spend a year on that. We could. But we do have to at least acknowledge this is somewhat problematic in certain ways, right? So let's, let's make sure we understand, okay? Sometimes we draw a distinction between, because we do this in the book of James, trials and temptations, right? 
We sometimes draw a correlation, right? God will allow a trial in your life, but God doesn't tempt you. Now, that's trying to draw a distinction, but if you really think about it, it's hard to maintain that distinction, right? Because we know every trial is what? A potential temptation, right? If you respond to the trial in a right way, then you can say it's not a temptation, but if you respond to the trial in the wrong way, then the trial became a temptation, and then you failed. So then that becomes, so if God brings a test into your life, well, what happens if you fail the test? Does that not then become sin? And if that becomes sin, then the test did not then become a source of temptation. It's very difficult in how to like, to satisfy. And I know there's a lot of different ways of trying to work it, but I think a lot of it's just playing a lot of linguistic. Well, see, God's not actually tempting. He's just, and I, know, and I understand what you're trying to say, but the bottom line is, and, and, and it's even more confusing or confounding because he, he says he does this and then, he, and then we're going to read here in a minute. Well, now I know. God already knew that. So I guess you could argue, since he already knew Abraham was going to pass the test, then he wasn't tempting him because in order he already knew what was going to happen. But then you could argue there are some other situations where God allowed them to happen and Abraham failed those tests. So then was God involved in those things happening or was God not involved? Well, then that gets all kinds, then you're like either God's involved in everything or he's not God. Then it becomes all confused. I don't have a good answer. I don't have a good answer. I just know that if God brings a test into my life and I fail the test, I, I guess I'm theologically and biblically bound not to say that God tempted me, but it's just very difficult to find that distinction other than to say the distinction in a way that everyone uh, sitting in a pew will go, okay, that makes sense, but everyone else outside the pew maybe out in the world is going to be like, you think that actually works? And it, does, it doesn't actually work, but... I don't have a good answer there, but I don't want to focus too much on that. Just know that there's a little bit of a struggle, or at least I have with that, okay? So Abraham speaks up and says, okay, behold, here I am. And then God says, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, Get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Now, the language used here, immediately we can kind of see what the test is, right? The test is not that you're just taking your son, your only son. What's the next word he says there? Whom you love, or whom thou lovest, right? In other words, take this special, unique thing that you love, and you're going to offer it to God. Now, I, I think that typically in preaching, that becomes an emphasis, right? And then how is that typically taken? What is God offering, or what is God calling you to offer up as a sacrifice tonight? What is God asking you to come to this altar tonight and lay on the altar and sacrifice to God? What is it that you love that you are putting before God? Are you willing to take it to the altar and sacrifice it tonight? That's usually how it's preached. And almost inevitably, if you preach it the right way, tell some emotional stories, you can get a lot of people to the altar and they all are going to be like, I'm going to offer up this and I'm going to offer up that. And, you know, it's, it's kind of an emotional kind of thing. 
you could argue over the value of that. Typically, it's, a, it's, it's an emotional thing that doesn't ultimately what? Last. And then, and not only that, then the question becomes, and remember, what is the constant question we have to ask when we're reading Old Testament narratives? What's the... Her, is it pre, yeah, descriptive or prescriptive? If it's descriptive, it's just describing what God called Abraham to do. If it's prescriptive, then we try to make it something we're supposed to do. So then what do, what do pastors do? What do you love? Offer it up to God. Now, the difference is, God is telling him to offer it up in a physical, legitimate way, and we try to uh, offer it up in kind of almost a, kind of in our mind way, right? Yeah, oh yeah, death is clearly implied here. Yeah, yeah. We, now, we, we, we may say we, do, we will, but we don't, right? It's always kind of just like a, oh, you're going to just... I'm going to think differently. Now, this is called, it would be, if we're going to really draw a parallel, it would be like you're bringing something to the altar and it's done. But the problem is a lot of things that people will bring to the altar will be some sin they're struggling with. I'm like, okay, I'm going to give this to God. The only problem is that, why does that not work? Okay, well, well, well that's a good point. That's a good point. Well, well, the thing is, just always remember, what it's, whatever sin you bring to the altar and you leave the church, just remember, you can't leave the sin there because sin is generated from a sinful nature which you're going to carry with you. Look, I heard way too many of these sermons as a teenager. And I don't know how many times I went to an altar going, okay, I'm going to give it to you, Lord. I'm, just, I'm so sorry. I'm, gonna, I'm never going to do it again. You know, and I'd be crying. I'm so sorry. And then, and then guess what? Because the, what, where does sin come from? The sinful nature, right? Like that, that's, it's so weird that sometimes as Christians, we say we believe in a sinful nature. We say we believe in depravity. And then so much of our preaching, we almost deny the existence of it. We almost go full Pelagian or semi-Pelagian. As long as the sinful nature is with you, you can bring every sin, everything you're struggling with it, lay it at the altar, stab it 17 times, but as long as the sinful nature is with you, the very thing that produces that sin is going to produce more sin. So that's already... A, and you can't lay your sinful nature on the altar. You can say you can, but you can't. All right? You just can't. So there's already... problem, And that's a good point, that even if you want to make this prescriptive, well, the thing that's offered up doesn't die, okay? So then the, then the prescription thing kind of falls apart, right? So that, that's a good point. All right, so... All right, so what do we do with this? Okay, well, I, look, I will agree. It is powerful that Abraham is called to take that which he loves and offers it up. I do agree. And it's almost impossible for a preacher not to see that and, and go, I mean, you can preach that, right? I don't need to do anything else. Do I need to know doctrine or theology? I just need to be able to articulate that in an emotional way. Bring in some illustrations, find some things that I know will step on your toes so that you'll feel convicted, and then we can have a good old church service. I don't know what we're doing with it theologically. So I'm going to off, I'm gonna just throw this out. I wonder if we have a tendency in this story to put all the emphasis on Abraham and what he does instead of putting the emphasis on Abraham and maybe what this is all supposed to represent. Do you see the distinction? 
We get caught up in Abraham's actions and then we see his actions as being prescriptive to our actions and then we've got to mimic those actions in some like way. Maybe this is really not about us. Now, I could be wrong, but I'm, th- I'm throwing, I'm, remember I like to throw out these hypotheses, but let's just see what happens, right? Go to the next verse. Or, or yeah, the one, verse nine, we have to skip everything else, okay? Right. Then they come to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, and laid him upon the altar upon the wood. All right, so Abraham is to give up his beloved son, his only son. The text is very specific in that language, right? Okay, Abraham is to do that. He comes to a specific place where everything is laid in order. You may want to follow this. You may want to be writing some of this down because I think this is following something. Abraham is called to give up his son, his only son, whom he loved, and then at the appointed place, everything is put in order. I, I think there's a parallel here, right? Maybe different than the parallel we, we, we used to preaching. Now we go to verse 10. Abraham stretched forth his hand, took the knife to slay his son, and the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything. For now, thou, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eye and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught up in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. All right, so we have Abraham has taken his son, his only son, whom he loves, goes to the appointed place where everything is made in order. And then ultimately what happens... We can, we can call it the principle of substitution takes place, right? That God provides a sacrifice as a substitute. As a substitute. So, now, I think that the, if you put it all together, we have someone offering up a son, only son, beloved son, at an appointed place with everything laid out in order where the act of substitution is demonstrated. Now, we can either put the focus on Abraham, and then I can preach it like, are you like Abraham? You need to be like Abraham. You need to take what you love. And you, or we can put the, the focus on what? The entire picture. Son, beloved son, only son, to be offered up as a sacrifice, at an appointed place where everything is made ready, and in that place, the act or the principle of substitution is carried out specific, specifically and literally. Agreed? Does everybody see that, right? Okay. Now, I understand that the son is not the one sacrificed, the, 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 the ram is, but it's still the whole principle of substitution is played out. So you have all of those pieces of it put together. Now, if we, if we leave it there, that's a pretty basic concept, right? Abraham is to take a son, only son, who is beloved. He's supposed to sacrifice it. He goes to the appointed place where everything is made ready. And then on that place, the principle of substitution is carried out. All right, now go to the Romans passage.
go to the Romans passage. All right, Romans 8, starting in verse 31. Now, remember, they only want us to read the second part of 31, right? Which is what? If God be for us, who can be against us? It's almost a rhetorical question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the question is, whenever you see that rhetorical question, we typically, it's typically used in some very questionable way by, by Christians, right? Right? People in sports will quote that. If God is for us, who can be? That's not about your sports team. Sometimes people use it for their country. It's not about that. Okay, I think it's about something specific. God, if God is for us, who can be against us in what way? Well, I think it's, it's specifically in regards to sin, right? Because the very next verse is, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall, how shall he not with us freely give us all things? And then what does it say in verse 33? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's the accusations. What can be against me? All the accusations in the world, all of the guilty verdicts laid against me, who can be against me if God is for me? How did God demonstrate that he is for me? In that that passage. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? How do I know God is for me and not against me? How do I know that if God is for me, who can be against me? Because God gave up his only son to die for me. Whatever is against me would have to be greater than the, the sacrifice of the son. That immediately tells me this is not about, oh man, the atheists are out there. Well, if God is for us, who can be against? It's not about that. It's about accusations and about sin. Right? If God is for me, nothing else can be against me because nothing else is greater than the sacrifice of Christ. That, that is, I don't know, to apply that beyond that, you're going to end up looking foolish, right? I mean, how many times do people quote something like that and then, you know, get knocked out in a fight or lose the baseball game? It's like, come on, stop quoting these scriptures about things that doesn't apply to, right? So, but notice verse 32. He spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. That is a direct parallel to the Genesis passage, right? Abraham demonstrates this. He gave up his own son, his beloved son. That God gave up his son, his beloved son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then there's going to be other places where he says, this is my be." Loved son, in whom I am well pleased. It's the, sa- it's the same language. So I know we can focus on Abraham and make it about us, but we're supposed to focus on Abraham and see God giving up his son. Correct? I think that's what we're supposed to see. And because God has given up his son, he's going to g- freely give us all things. And when he says freely give us all things, I think the focus here is on uh, probably the next two parts. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Because God gave up his only son, who can be against me? Who's the one who does the justifying? Nothing else. No other accusation can be thrown. You can throw all the accusations in the world. 
Your accusations, even if your accusations are true, cannot overcome what? God, the justification we have in Christ, right? In other words, if I am guilty of a dictionary of sin, right? And Bobby was to stand up and read this dictionary of sin and everyone in the church would go like, yep, he has committed every one of those sins. That's a lot of sins, right? Guess what? That does not overthrow what? God's justification. Now, I know, I know the Lordship people are like, well, that just proves you were never justified. No. Justifi- My actions cannot prove or disprove justification because justification is the finished work of Christ based on grace and faith, not based off action. If my action proves justification, then that justification is not God just justifying the sinner. That would be God making the sinner not a sinner by practical righteousness, which is back to Roman Catholicism and infused righteousness. All right? So the whole point is, guess what? um, God is, nothing can be against me because God uh, has given his son for me. And guess what? No, no, no one can lay any charge to the God's elect. It is God that justifieth. And then look at verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that he is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Nobody can condemn. I cannot condemn someone who's been justified by Christ. Why? If God is for me, who can be against me? My own sin cannot be against me if God has justified me. Right? So I think the emphasis in the Genesis passage, at least for the lectionary, I don't think they're wanting us to focus on Abraham's action as much as they want us to focus on what? Abraham presents to us God giving his beloved son as a sacrifice and carrying out the act of substitution. And Christ is the substitute for me, right? Christ died for me, my substitute. So then, as far as God is concerned, where is all my sin? It's been judged on Christ. It's now gone. It's been paid for. There's no more wrath left for me. There's no more judgment left. It's all taken care of. Does that make sense? All right. So we have the sacrifice clearly laid out. Now that takes us in to where? There's the sacrifice. Now that takes us to Mark. What do we do with this? I wish I could say something super profound here where you go, ooh, ah, I don't know if this is one of those I have anything profound to say. All right. Everything I've laid out right there is pretty straightforward and pretty simple. I think the only thing you may, the only thing I may challenge you to do is, at least for tonight, or the typical way of preaching Abraham, let's set it aside. Instead of focusing on Abraham being prescriptive for what we should offer up on us on an altar, maybe we, it, it's to be descriptive to point us to what Christ, what God did for us in Christ Jesus. I think maybe there's the emphasis. But now we come to Mark chapter 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leading them up into a high mountain apart from themselves, he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, as so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto him Elias with Moses, 
And they were talking with Jesus. Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make the tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. All right, now, if we try to draw a correlation, the main correlation maybe we could, we could focus on, maybe the main correlation we could see, that is loud. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but that is loud out there. Okay, we're trying to have church, people. We're trying to have church. Okay, all right. That is loud. All right, so, to, I, I mean, obviously, I think the main correlation or the, main, the thing that would immediately draw our eyes would probably be what? That phrase where he says, this is my beloved son. Because in Genesis, almost the same type of language is used. So then it, it, it made, the focus may main, be mainly on the fact that Christ was what? That he is God's son he, and he is be- beloved, he is special, he is transfigured, his deity is recognized, and maybe, maybe that's the emphasis. Maybe that's the emphasis. Um, other than that, it's hard to know exactly what to do with the transfiguration unless... Unless we do a couple of things here. So I'm going to look at some principles that come from this teaching of the transfiguration. And you tell me if we see any, if we can, if we can draw or we can draw a connection with this and uh, to, to Genesis or to Romans. Okay. I'm going to throw out the principles and you're like, Oh, I see the, I see how that connects. And if you don't see how it connects, just tell me and we'll disregard it. That sound good. All right, so here we go. The transfiguration, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is a significant event in the life of Jesus that reveals important principles and lessons. Here are key principles that we can learn. So let's start with the first one. Revelation of Jesus' divine nature. The transfiguration reveals the divine nature of Jesus Christ. The disciples witnessed Jesus being transfigured before them, his face shining like the sun, his clothes becoming dazzling white. This event affirmed Jesus' identity as the Son of God and showed his glory. Okay. I don't know if it's a direct correlation, but it does demonstrate, obviously, Jesus is unique. And, he, and if it emphasizes the fact that he is God's Son, then, okay, that kind of, maybe a kind of a direct a correlation, but it's more about the fact that the Son of God was more than just a man. He was also deity. So I don't know if, that, if that's a major emphasis, but okay. All right, we, 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 we can kind of see what we want to do with that. The second one, confirmation of Jesus as the chosen one. During the transfiguration, a, a voice from heaven declared, this is my Son, whom I loved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The proclamation confirmed Jesus as the chosen one, the beloved son of God, and emphasizes the importance of following his teaching. Well, I think this emphasizes what? Jesus is the beloved son of God, who for God so loved the world, gave up his only begotten son. So I think the first two concepts really just demonstrate the uniqueness, the glory, and, and the fact that he is the beloved son of God. He's unique, just like, in a sense, Isaac is treated as unique, the only, even though he's not the only, so he's, he's unique in that way. He's the one unique son 
who God says to be offered up as God is going to offer up his one unique son in Jesus Christ. He is unique because he is deity. He is unique because he's the eternal son of God and he is beloved. Right, so there's a correlation there. I think there's a correlation. I think, do, do, do we feel like that? that's okay? All right, I think so. All right, three, connection to the Old Testament. The presence of two Old Testament figures. Who are the two that show up? Moses and Elijah, right? They, this symbolizes the connection between Jesus and the Old Testament figure. Moses represents what? What would we say Moses represents? The law. I think everyone can agree with that, right? He's connected with the law. It's called the law of Moses. So clearly he's connected with it. Elijah would be the prophets. The law and the prophets. This indicates that that son, that unique, beloved son of God fulfills the law and the prophets. He fulfills the prophets because they prophesied and pointed to his coming. He fulfills the law in what way? Perfect obedience. The London Baptist Confession of Faith refers to Christ's passive and active obedience, right? He's going to fulfill the law That we can't. And so what I always say is the Sermon on the Mount is the law. The only person who can keep the Sermon on the Mount is the one who preached it. Right? He get because that, in fact, he's giving us a fuller understanding of the Old Testament law, which condemns us. So now this shows a connection that, like even in the Old Testament, even when you go to Genesis, okay, Mo, or Abraham, that sacrifice of the animal is just starting to prefigure what's about to come. What is going, what's going to ultimately come from the offering up of that ram? An entire sacrificial system where animals are going to have to be killed. And why are they going to have to be killed? Because we're sinners. And there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood, right? So in a sense, Genesis prefigures the entire sacrificial system. And the entire sacrificial system screams, what? God's law cannot be kept by man. Because if it could have been kept, there would have been no need for a sacrifice. The sacrificial system proved that man could not keep God's law. I will argue the sacrifice of Jesus proves that man cannot keep God's law. Now, everyone seems to imply in in most evangelical churches that in Jesus, we can keep the law. But he didn't come to die so that we could keep it. He came to die so that because he knew we couldn't keep it, just like no one in the Old Testament can. The difference is he only had to die once because his atonement is sufficient to cleanse us from all sin, past, present, and future. All right? So I think think the, the fact that the... Moses and Elijah is there. It's like, hey, Jesus is going to fulfill all of this. He's going to fulfill it. So Mo, or so Abraham in Genesis prefigures what's to come. The, in a sense, he's telling you the entire sacrificial system is going to come. And God is telling Abraham what? I'm going to provide a sacrifice. 
And now, the sacrifice he's going to provide for a long time is the, the sacrificial system. Animal after animal after animal, blood after blood after blood, demonstrating that man can never keep it. Because if they could have kept it, you would have only needed one sacrifice and it'd be the end. It didn't work. Ultimately, he provides the ultimate sacrifice, which is what? His son. So in a roundabout way, Genesis prefigures two concepts. The son and the animal sacrificial system. Both concepts are in one story. And I know we get so caught up on Abraham did this and we should do it. And Abraham did this and we should do it. No, what Abraham, what it should tell us is that Abraham by faith believed in God for a a sacrifice. And that by faith, we should believe God. I know we always want to turn it into Abraham believed God and was willing to give up uh, uh, Isaac. So we, by faith, should be willing to give up our Isaac. No, I think what it should show us is that by faith, God trusted in the one who provided the sacrifice. We should be like Abraham, by faith, trusting in the one who provided the sacrifice. So Genesis prefigures two concepts, a son being offered up and a substitute. In Jesus, he is son and the substitute. Romans then lays it out for us, right? Romans lays out the fulfillment of it. And what's the fulfillment of it? Remember the Romans passage? God gave up his son. What's the exact verse? The exact verse and the exact verbiage there in Romans? The exact verse and the exact verbiage. I want to make sure you write that ver- ver- the verbiage down. Did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us. So there we go. So in Christ is the fulfillment of everything in Genesis. Right? And now, because we have Christ, who can be against us? Who can condemn us? It is God who justifies. Who can lay any charge against the elect? No one. Right? Because it is God who justifies. Now, all of, now, once we get to the transfiguration, this is all being shown because now Christ as a unique son is shown. Do we see that? Yes. He's the unique son. He is, he is unique. He is beloved. There gets the son part. We, Jesus also fulfills the law and the prophets. He fulfills that, all right? What else happens here, all right? Uh, preparation for Jesus' death and resurrection. The transfiguration prepared the disciples for Jesus' upcoming suffering and death and resurrection. It gave them a glimpse of Jesus' glory to strengthen their faith and understanding of the events to come. He literally tells them, hey, don't tell of this story until after I've risen from the dead. This is to prepare them for his ultimate death. That death has to happen because he's the sacrifice. Oh yeah, yeah, they have no clue. They don't get, well, because at this point all they have seen from the sacrificial system is death, not resurrection. So they may, they may be able to understand the sacrificial part, they can't understand the resurrection part, right? <laughs> Oh, yeah, he did. Now, that's true. That's true. That's a good point. Right. But that is a good point. It is in, it is, it is in Hebrews. So, he did. That God could. Right. Right. Yeah. They have a hard, the disciples have a hard, yeah. 
yeah, they're, they're, they're confused, but it's obviously kind of preparing for them, all right? All right, um, it also is a call to listen to Jesus. The voice from heaven instructs the disciples to listen to Jesus. They emphasize the importance of paying attention to Jesus' teaching, following his example and obeying his commands. I, I, again, everything goes in that direction. I think the point is, focus on Christ. That's what you need to focus on. Because what could they have focused on? In fact, if you look at that, the dialogue there, when does, when does God step in and say, hey, 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 pay attention to Jesus? When did... Look at the dialogue. When does God step in and tell them to pay attention to Jesus? Something else happens before God tells them, hey, hey, focus on my son. Well, just, doesn't Peter make some statements prior to that? Peter is like, let's make three tabernacles for all three. And God steps in and says, focus on Jesus. In other words, don't be focusing on the law and the prophets because the fulfillment of both is in front of you. Listen to him. Now, I think it's important. I think, now, I know the text isn't here, but I think it's symbolic. Listen, if you listen to the law, what will you hear? Condemnation. If you listen to Jesus, what do you hear? Where are your accusers? I do not condemn you. You are forgiven. If you listen to the prophets, what are you doing? You're looking to that which is trying to point to the coming thing. Why would you want to look to what's pointing when you have the one right in front of you? Oh, very good point. Very good point. There's condemnation in the law and the prophets. Very good point. And in Jesus, then there's no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Right? That's very important, okay? Peter's like, no, no, I want to have all three. I don't blame Peter for wanting to do that. Right? I'm not blaming Peter, but for God to step in and kind of say, uh, you're missing the point here. The point isn't Moses and Elijah. What you're missing is that he, Jesus is the fulfillment of them. You should be seeing that the, my son is the fulfillment of all of this. You need to pay attention to him. But a lot of times we pay attention to Moses and the prophets, all right? Okay, so I think, I think all of that kind of tells you how all of this comes together. I think there's another concept. So I looked up something else. And not everyone agrees with this. So this is one source. The transfiguration can be seen as a foreshadowing or pointing to the concept of eternity in several ways. Now, if this is true, now this gets really interesting. Genesis prefigured or pointed to a beloved son being offered up and the animal sacrificial system. In Romans, Jesus fulfills both. Right? He's the beloved unique son, right? And he ends, he, he ends the animal sacrifices, right? Okay, so Genesis prefigures those two things. Jesus fulfills it all. Then in the Mount of Transfiguration, you have then it being kind of played out. Jesus is clearly identified as the unique beloved son, right? And it's clearly shown that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and in a sense, Everyone is told to pay attention to him. And in a roundabout way, he's pointing to his ultimate death and resurrection, which is required for him to fulfill all of it. All right. So 
Now, if it's pointing to eternity, here's what a couple of, of, of points made. The transfiguration provided a glimpse of Jesus' heavenly glory to the disciples. The vision of Jesus shining brightly and conversing with Moses and Elijah on the mountain can be interpreted as a foretaste of the glory that awaits believers in eternity. I think it clearly is showing him in a glorified state, not showing him what? And his incarnated state. And you, we know that what does Jesus pray in, what, I think, John 17? Restore to me the glory that I had with you. That, hey, Jesus is going to ascend to the right hand of the Father, and that glory is going to be restored, which points ultimately to heaven. All right? I, so I think that there's an eternal aspect to this. Okay? Um, the transfiguration revealed the presence of the heavenly realm uh, as represented by Moses and Elijah meeting with Jesus. The encounter symbolizes the unity of the past, present, and future in the kingdom of God, which transcends time and space, pointing towards the eternal nature of God's kingdom. They're saying that all of that together kind of points to God's ultimate kingdom. So, in a sense, Abraham prefigured the, the son, substitution, and the animal sacrifice, which all pointed to the fact that we're sinners and we need a substitute. Jesus comes in, fulfills all of that, And then the transfiguration shows that in him, all things find their fulfillment and their unity in Christ, in eternity. So kind of pointing to eternity, all right? Number three, the presence of Moses and Elijah, who had passed away, but appeared alive and conversing with Jesus, can be interpreted as a sign of life after death. The aspect of the transfiguration highlights the eternal nature of existence beyond the physical life on earth. It points to eternity. Moses and Elijah are both now there, right? And it shows Jesus in his transfigured state or his glorified state, which will happen after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, right? So it's pointing to eternity, pointing to our glorified state, all right? Uh, The transfiguration affirmed the eternal identity of Jesus as the Son of God. His divine nature revealed through the event signifies his eternal existence and reign as the Savior and King, emphasizing the concept of eternity in relation to Jesus. Okay? In other words, this eternal state is dependent on whom? Christ. Right? And so, all right, I, I, I can see that. And then... Um, the transfiguration transcends the limitations of time and space by bringing together Jesus, Moses, and Elijah and a supernatural encounter. This transcendent experience hints at the eternal dimensions of God's work and plan, which surpasses earthly boundaries and endures forever. So in other words, in another way, it points to an eternal, something eternal and supernatural, which is not normal, which transcends what we have on earth. So in a roundabout way, Genesis prefigures or pictures a beloved son to be offered an animal sacrifice. Correct? Substitution. Romans says, hey, Jesus took care of all of that. Jesus took care of all of that. The transfiguration shows that what was prefigured and was fulfilled in Christ will ultimately guarantee us the eternal state. And remember in Romans, what it says that God will freely give us all things. Those all things are not when. Now, but then, because what do we get then? Glorified body, no pain, no suffering, no death, no tears, no sin. In the meantime, in our present state in Christ, no one can 
condemn me because God justifies. And how do I know God justifies? Because Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets on my, in my behalf. And that's a good news, right? And I should listen to whom? Christ. What was pictured or pointed to by Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus, and I should listen to him. Because if I don't listen to him, and I listen to the law and the prophets, I will only hear, you are condemned, you are condemned, you are condemned, you are condemned. And that is how the readings fit together. Does that sound like that works? All right, see, this is where you're supposed to go. Ooh, wow. Oh, okay, all right. All right. Uh, there's more I can say, but I don't want to do any more because I think that summarizes it all really, really, really well. Now, you can work on reading them a little bit more if you want and put, putting it together a little bit better. And I, I don't know if I would have seen this to the, to the listener who sent the email. They, did, they helped me a lot because I, was, I didn't know exactly which direction to go. But I didn't, so what I wanted to do tonight is try to set that aside and just work through it. But if you work through it, you kind of see one is picturing one is the fulfillment, and the other one is kind of prefiguring eternity. At the same time, showing how Jesus fulfilled all of the other. Right? Does that make sense? Now, I am not, I'm going to make it, because someone's going to get mad at me on, on, the, on the internet. Look, I know that what we always want to focus on is what, what Abraham did, we should do. What Abraham did, we should do. And I'm telling you what you should do with it. You, you should do what Abraham did. Believe in the one who will provide the sacrifice. Believe in him. Trust in him. And I, we want to turn it into, no, we should do the same thing. I, I mean, you can try to find some like parallel where you can put something on the, offer, uh, the, the altar and drive a knife through it. But like Diane said, that picture doesn't even work out because he didn't ultimately kill his son. He walked down the mountain. With his son. So if you're going to make that your sermon, that you got to, well then, okay, I'll come to the altar tonight and say, I am willing to sacrifice, and I won't tell you what sin, whatever sin it is, but then I get to leave with it because I'm following the picture. You see that, you see how sometimes we create a picture that preaches good, but no one ever bothers to think of how the picture doesn't actually work? I think what we should learn from Abraham is that we are to put our faith and the one who provides the sacrifice. He believed God and it was accounted unto him righteousness. That's, who, that's what we should do. By faith, he believed in him. And you say, well, he was willing to give up his son. I understand that. That's great. But he was willing to believe because he believed God would provide a sacrifice. I, I, mean, I remember he even told Isaac on their way up that God will provide Himself a sacrifice. The issue was his faith in God to provide a sacrifice. I don't think the emphasis is on him willingness to give up Isaac, even though we want to make that the sermon. But even if we make that the sermon, he leaves with Isaac. <laughs> so it doesn't work. The issue is I need the faith to believe in God to provide a sacrifice for my sin to such a level that I can have complete peace and know that my sins have been forgiven and that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus and no one can lay the charge at me. And if God is for me, 
Who can be against me? No matter how many sins I may have and how many sins somebody wants to grab their checklist and say, you're not saved, you're not saved. I don't really care if you think I'm not saved because it is God who justifies. It's not you. I don't need MacArthur's approval. I don't need anybody else's approval. Now, you you may be right that my sin is sin and I got no problem acknowledging. I should acknowledge that it's sin. But that sin doesn't change my justification because whatever sin you point out Christ died for. That's the part that always confuses me. If I, yeah, if I point to a sin and say, that sin proves you're not saved, all Bobby has to say is Christ died for that sin. It's paid for. So then how can sin prove Bobby's not saved? The only way it could prove is if Bobby wasn't believing in Jesus' sacrifice for it. Right? So that's where it gets really, I know that that bothers a lot of people and because they want to th- be able to throw everyone they want out of the kingdom of God. But here's what I know. If God is for me, you can hang up your phone now because it doesn't matter. Who justifies? God. I mean, Romans makes it very clear. And then when, and then when Jesus is standing there with Moses and Elijah, it's, he's fulfilled it. And then God's like, hey, stop focusing on Moses and Elijah. Focus on my son. Hear him. Listen to him. Because his words are, your sins are forgiven. I do not condemn you. Now, if I don't listen to him and I go run to Moses and Elijah, I'm going to be told, guilty, 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 guilty. And, uh, well... I am guilty. That's the, I got no problem to admit that. That's why I need Christ. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, I hope that somehow these very important words prove to be helpful and beneficial and challenging and comforting to us all and that we would listen to the words of Christ and not to the other words that sometimes we focus so much on. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,